Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching The Blood of Heroes from 1989. Now, you could also say that we're watching The Salute of the Jugger, which, the two names, it's the same movie, except one was called Salute of the Jugger in, like, Australia. Over here in the States, it was called The Blood of Heroes because it's kind of an oddball name. Anyway, it was written and directed by David Webb Peoples. It stars Rutger Hauer, Joan Chen, and Vincent D'Onofrio. Cinematography was done by David Egby, our friend from oh, nice. Mad Max there. Is that our connection to the movie? Or more is or there less. more? More or less. Okay. Um, it was also a legitimately Australian production. Ah, uh, okay. From that era. It was also recommended to us by one of our listeners. Oh, okay. Nice. So... That's another good one. Um, it was produced by Kings Road Entertainment, distributed by New Line Cinema, had a budget of, it looks like $10 million, and it brought in 882000 at the box office. Wait, what? I'm going to see if that was uh, adjusted. It might be an adjusted $10 million, because... $10 million is a lot for a movie. In 1989? Yeah, that's a ton ton of money so and we'll see maybe watching the movie we'll say oh yeah this is a 10 million dollar movie yeah um if that's true then they lost a lot of money Mm -hmm. i feel bad so the cut that we're watching is the salute of the jugger it is nine minutes longer than the blood of heroes because there was an alternative cut between the u.s versus the international version okay um Apparently, if we were watching the U.S. version, we would lose some content after the climax of the movie. So so that's where the nine minutes is? That's where the nine minute is, I guess. Okay. It's probably scattered in and amongst the movies as well. So the listener who got us this copy is longtime listener, longtime commenter, Joe Devitt Ricks. He's one oh. of our Australian listeners, one of our nice. official Thanks, cultural Joe. liaisons. <laughs> um, he very strongly recommended that we not watch the U.S. version. Ah. That despite the very specific title of the international version, it is the better of the two. Okay. So. Okay. I'm kind of hoping that because it is the better of the two versions that we're going to get more out of it. Um, I don't really know what to expect out of this movie. Um. I mean, Rudger Hauer is a very well-respected actor who's been in some amazing films. The first one that pops to mind is Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. He was the, the replicant in that one. Um, the name Joan Chen sounds familiar. She was in The Last Emperor. She was in Twin Peaks. That's where I recognize oh, her from. okay. Yeah. Um, I think she was... Oh, I can't remember the uh, the character's name. Let's see if I can find it. Ah, yeah, she was Josie Packard. Yes. That's who she was. Okay. (laughs) I'm okay. I'm okay. And then, of course, Vincent D'Onofrio, who pops up all over the place. Yes. I'm looking forward to seeing him so young. Mm, That's for sure. So I found a good version of the trailer for this movie. So it's not going to be like Allison's birthday, where it's like a 30-second weird blip. This is going to be like an actual, legit trailer, so... Have fun listening to that. We're going to watch the movie, and we'll come back when the credits start rolling. 
become the author of Blade Runner and Lady Hawk. Jug is coming! Juggers! Juggers! Jug is coming! They're coming! They're coming! In a future ravaged by war, all eyes are on Juggers. Outcast champions playing a game of survival. Punish him! Punish him! This is the story of Kidda, who has heard tales of a world far better than the one fate has given her. Is there really such a thing as soap? She will do anything. I got speed. I can run. I'll quick for you. She will risk everything to be <laughs> one of the judges. It is the story of Salo, banished from a place of honor in the underground Red City because of a woman. I like the blood of heroes. Now, this woman will lead him back. We could play a team from the League. Theirs will be a journey through a gauntlet of time and trial. Get her loose! To that fabled city, where Salo will challenge the Jugger who took his title. He could lose that other eye easily enough. Where Kidda will discover that the world of her dreams is no dream at all. I don't want the attention of the League. But I do. Rutger Hauer. It must be soft. Skiing with no scars. I like scars. And Joan Chen of The Last Emperor. They accepted the challenge! So what'd you think? I liked it. I enjoyed it very much. Um, I gotta say, it is the most oddball, like, underdog sports story I think I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I've seen a lot. Like, you've got your Remember the Titans, you've got your Mighty Ducks, you've got all of these underdog sports stories, you've got your Sandlots, and then you've got Salute of the Jugger. <laughs> yeah, I, they just made up a whole new sport. I say. It kind of makes me feel like if they were to make a Harry Potter movie just about playing Quidditch, it would be just like this. Well, yeah, post-apocalyptic Quidditch. No, 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 no. like, like take the take the <laughs> setting out of it. Just take like the structure of the movie into account. Like the the young kid who wants to make it big, and so they find a veteran team and get in good. And then go and, like, get recognized by, you know, the League or whatever it is. Like, that would make a good, like, Quidditch story for, like, the Harry Potter universe. Like, if they wanted to do, like, one of those extended universe-style movies, they could use this exact formula. Yeah, I think they could. That's it. Um, Although... It it was interesting. It was interesting. Like, it was compelling. Like, I didn't understand the sport at first, and I kind of picked it up rather quick. But, like, despite it being foreign, it was, like, really compelling. Despite it being foreign. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, I liked that they didn't hold your hand on explaining the sport. Mm-hmm. You really, it was up to you. 
you if you wanted to pick up how to play it, you could. The information was mostly there. But even if you don't know how to play it, you can still enjoy watching it. Yeah. And I like that they didn't like spoon feed us the explanation. Yeah. It's like football. I don't know how to play football. I don't know the rules of football, but I enjoy watching it. Yeah. Like and maybe I would enjoy it more if I did understand the rules, but I'm good with not. Yeah, it's not one of those things where like you need to know what each type of pass is or what each position is called. Like I didn't get a good sense of like what each person on the team, like what their position was called, but it was really easy to understand what they did. Yes. Like what their point of being on the floor was. Yes. So to speak. So we start off the movie with this kid like running through this dog town announcing the arrival of Juggers. The Juggers are coming, the Juggers are coming because this team led by Rudker Hauer is coming into town and they are there to play this game called Just the Game. It doesn't really have a name, uh, anything more than just what it is. So let me see if I can find some rules here because like we said before, they don't go into it. So the teams go around from town to town challenging the local team if the traveling team wins they collect the skull from that town so the game involves two armored teams of five attempting to score by placing a dog skull on the opposing team's goalpost one unarmed player known as the quick runs with the skull while being protected by their teammates from attack by the opposing team the game has its own wikipedia page apparently it's something that people play in real life apparently it's really popular in germany so but i'm sure they play it much more low-key than they play it in the movie because the movie is like no holds bar yeah it looks like when they play it in real life they use the foam weapons and not so much the uh the steel pipes and the Ah. chains and things like that so okay a team is composed of five rolls with three alternates allowed. So you have one quick, which is the unarmed player that is the only one allowed to touch the skull. You have one chain, who is a player armed with a chain that whips it around. And then three enforcers armed with... In the movie, it's like these pole things with big hitting ends and big hooking ends. And then you have three substitutes. So in the movie, they're called the quick, the slash, who is... Rugger Hauer's role, the drive, which is uh, Kim's role. You have the back charge, which is Mabulu's role, and the griffer, which is the chain guy. So they have different names in real life versus in the film. Okay. So as far as our characters are concerned, at the beginning of the movie with the team rolling into town, Sallow is the leader. He is supported by Kim and Mabulu. Kim is the woman on the team at the beginning of the movie. Okay, I'm looking for Kim on the IMDb page, and I'm not seeing anyone. She's known as Big Big Kimber. Oh, Big Kimber. Okay, I saw Big Climber, so that's why I didn't make the connection. Okay. And then you have Mabulu. And then the griffer on the team is played by Vincent D'Onofrio's character. Um, His name is Gar. And then their initial quick is a guy named dog boy but he gets wrecked up pretty bad in the first game and so they end up leaving him behind and replacing him with kidda who's played by joan chen i appreciated that they weren't the team as they're leaving town yeah dog boy is kind of on his own he's limping out of town he can barely stand up he's using one of their clubs as a crutch Mm -hmm. and they're not really helping him along but they're not abandoning him right away 
They wait for him. They stop and wait for him. But he's still on his own. They're not going to carry him. Yeah. So he gets to the point where he says, I can't stand up anymore. I can't move on. At that point, uh, I think it was um mbulu that said we'll build we'll build a cot and we'll drag him yeah and dog boy was like insulted absolutely not Mm -hmm. he was willing to be left behind rather than be dragged along yeah so i feel like we've been skipping around because the plot summary that i've been reading from is really not great for this so salo's team rolls into this town they play one round with the local team, the quick on the local team is taken out by the um, by Salo's team, and so Joan Chen Kidda comes up and she joins the local team and ends up pretty much destroying Dog Boy's leg. So the visiting team ends up winning anyway because of just how good they are. Yeah, because they're good. So on their way out of town, Kidda follows them. And there's a good sequence at the beginning there where Salo's team is just walking and Kid is just following in a distance, almost like waiting for Dog Boy to drop out. <laughs> yeah. She makes her presence known. They mm-hmm. know that she's there. And they even said to her, we have a quick. We don't need you. And she's like, okay. And she keeps following them anyways because she knows. she She's the one that destroyed his leg. She knows that he's not going to get better. Yeah. So one of the reasons that she's really following this team in particular is because Rudker Hauer's character has a tattoo on his forehead that denotes him as someone who has played in the league. So in the big city, I think it's called... The Red City? The Red City. He used to be a part of the League of the Nine Cities, but he had this affair with a noble woman i think it was and then he angered one of the lords and the lord had him exiled or something like that yeah i think that's the basics of what happened so she recognizes that he was a great player and so she wants to learn from him and so as dog boy drops out of the team they kind of give kid a like a trial run almost yeah yeah and it's really funny to see because they initially set her up against you know salo mabulu and uh, kim and she tries to get past them and she's not doing very well because it's three against one and so they tell gar to get up there with his chain and start protecting her and he's kind of he's a hothead like he's played by young vincent d'onofrio so of course he's got a chip on his shoulder yeah and and this is a very d'onofrio part like he is playing vincent d'onofrio playing gar like it's yeah yeah, and he's he, he plays an interesting role as the Griffa, where on the one hand, he's there to protect the Quick, but at the other hand, like, the Griffas usually pair off against each other, just like the, the Slashes do. I'm just going to bulk all of them into one group, so the people that carry the sticks are going to be Slashes, Griffa, and then Quick. Make it much easier than trying to remember five different titles by just using three. But in these little testing runs... They have Gar get there, and he's protecting her against the three of them. And she she's fast. Like that's definitely her she is, advantage. Yes, she is very quick, <laughs> <laughs> for lack of a better term. Yeah, yeah. One thing that really stands out about Kitta, and this is especially true in the next town they get to after they incorporate her onto the team, is that yes, she's fast, but she's not particularly big and strong. Right. She's small, which helps her with her speed, but she's got like no weight to her. Yeah. And the first match that we really see them playing together as a new team, she spends a very good portion of that match 
just on the back of the opposing quick, trying to stop him. And she has to resort to other tactics. Like she bites his ear off. Oh, yeah. And just spits it out on the ground. Yeah, she goes full on Tyson. Yeah. As far as this guy is concerned. Yep. And she has to do, she has to have these other maneuvers because her weight is doing nothing. Yeah. The the nifty thing about these teams that come through towns is that once they win, like the entire town has like a party to yeah. celebrate that these guys came and that there was a game. And so the opposing team, they get food, they get music, they get companionship. carnal companionship. <laughs> And what's nice is that there are lady whores, but there are also boy whores for the lady players. And Big Kim, she is great because she's this big, tough lady. But there's one point in this movie where she walks over to the selection of boy whores and she like picks out two of them. Yeah. And just walks off with them, leaving this one poor, sad boy whore left behind. He looked like he was going to cry. He was so sad that he didn't get picked to be a boy whore. Womp womp. (laughs) um now do you have the imdb up for this movie i do i do i have it open could you find for me the guy who carries all of their equipment and stuff is that gandhi i think he doesn't have a picture um so his name is gandhi mcintyre which is quite the name yeah um and his character's name is also gandhi okay if i have the right person there's no picture so but he's listed he's number five listed okay so the one person that we have not mentioned about on the team is the character of Gandhi, who is this like small old guy who yeah. walks around with a wardrobe on his back. And it's like a giant wood wardrobe that is yeah. surprisingly light, uh-huh. I guess. Either it's light or he's super strong. I think he's super strong. Yeah. So he's kind of like the the support like character. I feel like he's like kinda... a coach. Coach, manager, support. Substitute. (laughs) Substitute. Kind of everything that they need. Yeah. Yeah. As I say, he is kind of a comedic relief character. He's definitely a lighter tone than some of the more serious characters. Like, he's the guy who stitches everybody up after a fight. Yes. And after, I think it's the first fight, they are all recouping after the initial thing. And Salo comes into a tent and Gandhi is there stitching up Mabulu. And Salo makes a joke about how Mabulu gets stitched up so often that soon he's going to be nothing but thread. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because he takes a little dig at him. He says, you'll be nothing but white thread. And Mabulu is is a black character. Yep. Like, he's got really dark skin. And so that was just an extra little joke there. But as they go from town to town, like, they get to have these little revels. And so it's not a bad life. No, it considering seems it's pretty good. Yeah. And the thing I like about the Juggers is that everyone is really sporting. Oh, yeah. They don't hold grudges. Like, as soon as that dog skull is on the stick, everybody, like, puts down their weapons. And they've got this... <sighs> Like sign thing. A salute. Thank you. A salute (laughs) thing they do. They like bump wrists together. (laughs) And so they all do that thing together and like it's all good and then they go party. Yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about because internationally this movie is called The Salute of the Juggers and you see the salute a lot. Yes. In this movie. And there is one point where a character is speaking to another character and they say the phrase the blood of heroes. 
which yeah. is what the U.S. release is called. I don't understand why they changed the name. I don't see anything wrong with the name, the Salute of the Juggers. I think it's because Juggers is such a strange term. Yeah, so watch the movie and find out what a Jugger is. Well, I'm just th- trying to think. When you're putting up a marquee and the sign says, The Salute of the Juggers. Like, yeah, people will go and they will see, you know, the return of the Jedi so long as that title is preceded by Star Wars. If someone's looking at a marquee and it says the salute of the Juggers and they're going to look at it and they're going to be like, okay, well, first of all, what is a Jugger? Why are they saluting? Like, it's an intriguing title, but at the same time, if you've got that up against what else came out in 1989? (laughs) Batman? (laughs) <laughs> or Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, yeah, there um, is. Lethal name... Weapon 2. Yeah, there's a lot of name recognition there. Roadhouse, Ghostbusters 2, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Like, The Blood of Heroes is just a much more accessible title. So I can really understand why they changed it. <sighs> I'm not sold. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> now, do you know, was it Blood of Heroes only in the U.S., or was it Blood of Heroes outside Australia? So, so like, in Europe, what was it called? Do we know? Outside of the United States, it was the Salute of the Jugger. Okay, so it was only Blood of Heroes for the United States. Yeah. And it also is, like, the Blood of Heroes is a shorter cut. So as opposed to being 90 minutes in the U.S., it was 99 minutes everywhere else, which is the 99-minute version that's what we watched. Yes. Which I think, I was very satisfied with the length. It was not overlong no. or anything like that. No, it was I nice felt like it length. had a very satisfying ending. Yes. Like I, I I can't imagine cutting it down more. Like I'm sure you could do it, but at the same time, I feel like I was fine with it. So we go from them having their first couple of games to having like a montage of games. Yeah. And you can see them getting better. Right. I think the the three slashers Mm-hmm. Is that what they're called? Okay, so the three slashers, they are like veterans, and they're always good. But Gar and Kiddo are both young and new, and they're the ones who need practice and experience, mm-hmm. and the montage is is them getting that. Yeah. So we, if I remember correctly, we end the montage with them winning a match just too fast. Yeah, it was too easy for them. Yes, which means there was no party. Yeah. Yeah, it was really just... Like, the party is an extension of the game. If the game is good and people are excited and they attend and they have a good time, then they go party. Yeah. But if the match is too easy, nobody's having a good time and they all go home. Speaking of not having a good time, somewhere before their really easy win, I think it was at the same party where Big Kim took took two two and Kidda was just... Just left with the one boy whore to pick from. Yes. The really sad one. And you see her looking back and forth between Gar and the one sad boy whore. And she looks back and forth between them a couple of times. Yeah. And then we cut inside the tent and it en- and Kitta ended up with Gar. Yes. But it's not like a comfortable situation for either of them. No. It reminded me of... Is it uh, Temple of Doom where... No, no, no. It's not Temple of Doom. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indiana Jones is all beat up and sore. And what's her face? What's her face? Marion. Marion is trying to make a move. And he's like, ow, ow, don't touch me there. That hurts. 
Like, that's exactly what this was yeah. like. So Sallow walks into the tent and he sees the two of them and he's like, well, he's that's why watching. that's why juggers don't have sex after a game because it's like just rubbing wounds against wounds. Right. <laughs> They're both in pain and sore and bloody. That's why there are groups of whores out there for them. Yeah. So I find it interesting that there is no romantic subplot to this movie. No, it's just purely physical. Yeah, because... I feel like if this were a more modern film, they would definitely, like, make Gar and Kitta's relationship a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, everybody on the team is just, like, they're their own little family or something like that. They are all just very comfortable with each other. Yeah. And we never see Kitta and Gar sleep together after this. No. Well, okay, it wasn't successful. Yeah, but we never see any other instances. Right. But I mean, the one time they did sleep together was unsuccessful. But yeah, they don't play up that relationship. They're just members of the team. And I kind of like that, that there's no romantic subplot to this movie. Right. There's not, there's no, there's no difference between men and women in this movie. And in this game that is very, very physical, um, there's no difference between men and women. Mm -hmm. Um, There are two women on the team, three men on the team, and there's only ever one reference to gender the entire time they way 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 back in the beginning when the team loses their first match to the local team Sallow makes a comment how they're playing like women really the only time the gender is ever mentioned in the entire thing and i was kind of hoping that kim would say something like well i am a woman yeah um but nobody responds to him when he says that and he never says anything like that again yeah i completely missed that line it yeah. was com- it was come and gone before i even it noticed. might have been one of his very first lines yeah because it was right after the match when they're like taking a break before the next one yeah the equipment that the teams wear is so not gendered and it's not just not gendered but it's also not like color schemed no it's not regulated in any way. Like when you watch the montage of them playing against all these local teams, if Kitta wasn't wearing a helmet that let her face show, yeah. you wouldn't be able to figure out who who was who. Yeah, and um Gar wears a helmet that his face shows and he's just grinning the whole time. Oh yeah, he's so those two you can pick out really easy, but everybody else is just a blur. Mm-hmm. So They eventually get to this point, rewinding back to them winning and not having any challenge. They get to this point where Kid has got it in her head and Gar is totally supporting her that they should go to one of the nine cities, the Red City, and challenge the League. Yes. Because these local teams, if they collect up enough skulls, they can go to the League and challenge a League team. And then if they get recognized by the upper class, they get elevated to play as part of the League. Yes. And they get elevated as individuals. Yeah. It's not like a team is a solid unit that can never be split apart. If they go to challenge, it's pretty much they're all on, they're each on their own. Yeah. They need to make an impression individually, which does not necessarily foster teamwork. Like you could be, so you're in your challenge match and you need to stand out. So you, you do things that make yourself look better, not necessarily for the good of your team. Okay. 
However, in order to stand out as a player, because the game's teams are so small, like if you want to stand out as an individual, you need to do your job really well. Yes. And so, you know, if you want to stand out as a slasher, well, then you need to do a really good job of taking out the other team's slashers and protecting your quick. Like that's, you know, you're part of a team there. And if you want to appear as a valuable player... Like, you're going to be playing as playing as a team. I can't think of any role where a member of the team would abandon their other teammates just to look good. I, I don't, don't think, think it's, it's that type of game. I don't think it's so much abandoning. It's just maybe not playing with the group's interest at heart. Yeah. But with your own interest at heart. Well, see, that's the thing. It's a subtle difference. Like, in the game itself, like, your own interests don't exist. Well, uh, in one of the matches... Oh, was it during the montage? They were... Oh, no. Was it the challenge? Where the challenge, the opposing quick did a fancy schmancy move. Like he did an extra roll that he didn't need to do. Are you talking about him showboating? Yes. Oh. And it made him look good, but it also lost him the match because Kidda had enough time to catch up to him. Yeah, but I don't think that's the same thing. Yeah. So rewinding before we get to the final match let's get back to the setup so they go to the red city which is an underground city yes like they show this huge long line of people going into this like rusty little shack and no one's coming out again so it's like i don't we don't know what's going on until they descend into the city it's an elevator and it takes a very long time like they they all like settle in yeah we don't really get a sense of how long, but, like, people are sleeping. Yeah. I wonder if it's just, like, the elevator is slow or if it really is that deep. I think it's both. Yeah. Yeah. And you you said yourself that you were kind of disappointed that this big city is all underground. Yeah, I didn't like it. Um, we, the first half of the movie, we're out in the world and there's lots of daylight and things are well lit. Mm-hmm. And people are free and not crowded and maybe this is my rural preference you know we live out in the middle of nowhere i like being where there's not as many people i don't mind going to cities at all but then i like leaving them yeah um so to to go into this dark cramped hot no air circulation city just felt like a step down yeah and this is where Kidda and Gandhi, well, Gandhi tells Kidda about the city and how the upper class live. And he talks about silk and she really kind of latches onto that idea Yeah, of silk. It's like a breeze on your cheek. Yeah. Like, well, first of all, those people don't know what that means. They don't have breezes on their cheeks. <laughs> so this luxurious life that we're like imagining when we get to the city is extremely disappointing to me. So what I would have preferred to see out of the Red City is not so much something underground. And I feel like they put it underground because it's easier to build sets for underground environments. But what I would have liked to see about a sprawling post-apocalyptic city is actually something from the Mad Max video game that I've been playing lately. One of the environments that you go into is an old airport and is an airport that has been covered by sand over time. So you get these large open areas, you get these huge window openings and everything is still like post-apocalyptic, but like there are rooms and compartments and open byways and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I would have preferred to see something like that. 
something yeah. that this city is built out of something that is reminiscent of modern times because right. this is specifically post-apocalyptic like the opening crawl of this movie says hey you know wars destroyed everything and now this is the world that we live in yes um that would have been interesting it would have been really cool but i don't know how many abandoned airports that you could have used um, this was shot in the desert of Cooper Pedy, Australia. I don't think they have anything like that out there that they can use. I feel like if you had like a good CG budget, you could probably make something like that a reality. Yeah. But yeah, just the dark, cramped, noisy, probably smelly environment yeah. of the Red City was so loud, not very appealing. Um, jumping ahead to the very end of the movie, when we go back outside, I was relieved. Yeah, to <laughs> be back out in the open air. Yes. So they go into the city and, you know, new sights, new sounds, whatnot, but they need to go challenge the League. And before they actually go and present their trophies to this, like, ruling council of people, Sallow and Kidda go and they look at the pit where they play this game. And Kidda kind of realizes just how rough the League teams are. Okay, Sallow had tried, has been trying to explain how different the league is. Mm -hmm. Like, lasting 26 stones is the best that's ever been done. Out of 100 stones, lasting 26 is excellent and amazing and record-breaking. We should probably mention... Yeah, the, I don't think we mentioned the stones As yet. they play the game, the game is played in three rounds of 100 stones each, and the way they do it is they have a pile of three stones of 100, and they have this one guy picks up a stone throws it in a metal plate. That's one stone. And he does yeah. that a hundred times. That's one round. Yes. And if nobody places the dog skull on a stake at the end of the field in those three rounds, then it's a draw. Yeah. So it's it's nice because you can finish an entire game in like half an hour maximum. Oh, yeah. That type it's of thing. So it's so physically intense that the, the rounds are actually not that long. Yeah. So the thing about the league teams when they play challengers is that challengers never last more than like 20 25 stones yeah and it's the same setup in the the city it's not like a machine throwing stones at regular intervals it's right, a dude it's a up in a cage throwing stones at a metal plate and so kidda gets really intimidated but after the match that we watch Salo and Kidda go to this window and they're watching the players walk by these nobles. And that's where we catch our first sight of our old friend, Hugh Keysburn, yes. who plays the lord that Salo slighted during his affair yes. with the lord's woman or something like that. I don't think she ever is addressed with no, a name or anything no, they like don't, that. No, they don't ever really address like exactly what happened hmm. it's with all the people who vague. it happened with. It's, it's, it is very vague. Yeah. Um, so Hugh Keysburn. Has not aged fantastic. He's put on some weight in I the think, 13 years since yeah, uh, I think his problem is that when he puts on weight, which as we age, that tends to happen, he puts it on in his face. Yeah. Like his his physique, which we didn't really get to see him much at all from like the shoulders down. So we didn't really get a sense of like his body size, but it, he wasn't a large man. I think when he puts on weight, he puts it on in his face. Yeah. And seemed a bit rounder there. Yes. Um, but his acting has not changed at all. No, it's still great. Yeah, it's still fantastic. So after Salo sees Yuki's burn, he goes back to another window and he catches up with one of the players. And it's this guy. Gonzo. Yes. 
Which they say his name a lot, actually, now that I remember it. So, Gonzo is another familiar face to us. It's Max Fairchild <laughs> from Yeah, I had Mad no Max. idea. He played Benno yeah. in the movie there. Of course, it's been, like we said, 13 years, yes. and so he looks a bit different. Than... And he's, holy, his makeup. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about the makeup! That's why he was so amazing! Because it was Michael Westmore! Did the makeup! That's why the makeup was so good! Yep. All these players, they are covered in scars. Absolutely covered in scars. And uh, Gonzo has a steel plate in his head, first of all. Mm -hmm. And he is completely unrecognizable as Max Fairchild. And it just occurred to me that it was all so good because Michael Westmore, who is the makeup designer for Star Wars. I, off the top of my head, I don't remember like specifically which ones, but many of them. Like a creature designer. We know him from the sci-fi show Face Off, yep. where he serves as a... Um, an advisor or a mentor. Okay. So Michael Westmore, let's go down his filmography so you know what uh, what movies he's worked on. Let's see. Yep. Um, he's worked on Star Trek Enterprise, the 2001 series, Star Trek Nemesis, Along Came a Spider, Star Trek Voyager, the TV series, uh, Deep Space Nine, Insurrection. Those are all Star Treks. Um, First Contact. He worked on The Next Generation. He did makeup for Rocky V, the MacGyver TV series. Wait, did he not do Star Wars? Uh, I haven't gotten back that far yet. Oh, okay. For a second, I thought I was wrong. He was makeup designer for Masters of the Universe in 1987. <laughs> he did prosthetic makeups for Blade Runner. First Blood, Rocky Three, Raging Bull, <laughs> Rocky Two. Okay, so he did not do Star Wars. Nope. Okay, so it was Star Trek that I was thinking of. Yeah, he of. did all of the Rocky movies, but yeah, no no Star Wars Okay, movies. so Star Trek that he was heavily involved with. Yeah. Yeah, he is, he's amazing. He's a legend. When I saw his name on screen, I had to like double check to make sure it was like the same Michael Westmore. Yeah. Yeah. And now I get it. At first I was, I, I didn't really understand why they would bring somebody like him in on a movie like this. But after seeing the movie and the makeup and the scarring that everybody has, mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, that's why they brought him in. I find it interesting that Michael Westmore did makeup for this movie and Blade Runner because Rudger Hauer has a huge part in Blade Runner as well. Yeah. And so it's nice to see actors and crew coming back together. Yes. Working on other projects. Yes. Probably had something to do with it. So anyway, we run into Max Fairchild as Gonzo. And Sallow's like, I'm going to challenge the league. And Gonzo's like, are you sure that's a good idea? Because you didn't really leave here on the best of terms and whatnot. And Sallow's like, no, this is this is happening. So they go in front of the, the judges table, so to speak. And Gandhi goes up and he just empties their bag of skulls or something like that. It's either Gandhi or Kidda who Kidda, empties the bag. Kidda, I think, is the one who formally makes the challenge. Yeah. Because normally it would be the leader of the team, which is Sallow. But they decide that it wouldn't that Sallow wouldn't do it so that they wouldn't refuse the challenge just offhand. Yeah. Like he kind of tried to hide a little bit. <laughs> yeah, definitely hanging out in the shadows. Yeah. When he presented himself, they present themselves one by one. When he presented himself, he didn't stick around for long, and he didn't draw the attention of anybody. Yeah. He just kind of stood there for a second and then went and hid in the shadows again. Yeah, you can definitely tell that uh, Kimber and Mabulu and Sallow are kind of veterans to this process. 
because Kitta walks in, she empties the bag of skulls on the table and then goes to stand by the side. The three slashers walk in. They just kind of stand there for a moment and then step to the side. <laughs> and then Gar comes in and he's got his griffer's chain. Yeah. And he's standing there and they're not looking at him. So he starts whipping his chain above his head and he's like, ha! Like making a big thing about it. And they still don't look up at it. They don't care. And so he goes back to the thing. And was it Gandhi who says it's like, it doesn't matter at this point. This is all just a farce. They only care about the skulls. Right. They really only care about your record. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's at that point that the nobleman that we saw earlier, Hugh Keys Byrne, he comes in and he notices Sallow. Mm -hmm. Like he sees him in there and he's whispering to the guy behind the table. And they think that because this nobleman recognized Sallow that they're not going to get in. Which is what I thought, too. Yeah, everyone's really downheart, downtrodden. And so I think it's at that point that we get the the wall-mounted hotel scene. Yes. So. Which was very interesting. So Sallow and Kitta, they're walking together and they go to this hotel setup where it's this dude at the bottom of a wall with a table and they want to buy some cots to sleep on or something like that and so kid is like buy one save your money and so then they start this long climb up this ladder past rows and rows and rows of cots and like wall cutouts and things like that yeah higher and higher and it's like dizzying to think yeah how high this thing is yeah it was mm, (laughs) i'm not great with high yeah so yeah that was something but it was interesting because once they got to the top they had this little conversation about like how the league players live you know surrounded by silk and treated as equals with the other noble people and whatnot and i think at this point is where kidda mentions that you know is silk really a thing like i've heard that it feels like breeze on your face and it's like i feel like that's definitely her main motivation throughout this movie to go from where she started as a farmer to that point where she's like a respected league player being able to have luxurious things yes I'm not really, at first I thought her motivation was just to get out of her town and travel and get to compete. And then she brings up the idea of going to challenge the league in one of the big cities, the Red City. Um, I never felt like luxury was a huge motivation for her. So at the end where it did kind of seem like a motivation, it felt out of the blue. Because mm-hmm. as soon as she started bringing up the idea of being a league player, that's definitely where I felt that her motivations became clear. Like her goal was to become a league player so that she could escape that life of squalor. I mean, Vincent D'Onofrio's character, he wanted the fame. Like he wanted the recognition. Yes. But she wanted, you know, a better life. A better life. So they are up there and they... I don't know what they do, but at one point Kitta mentions, you know, being a league player must have been amazing. You know, food, clothing, women with no scars. And Rudger Hauer fires back with, like, that he likes scars. And so I'm not sure, like, did they sleep together? Is that the implication? Yeah, absolutely. That was her entire goal. She did not care about saving money. She shared a cot and she went up there to sleep with him. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I... There's a lot of things happening in the Red City, like... Well, actually, there's a lot of things happening in the movie where the lighting is not great. Uh, And so there are things happening, I'm sure, but I can't see them. (laughs) Well, okay, that's true. But um, as far as those two go, Kidda and Sallow, tension had been growing for a little while. 
Mm-hmm. And it might be the difference in our sensibilities that I picked up on it and you didn't. Yeah. But it was very clear to me. Her motivations for sharing a cot were not to save money. Yeah. So, um, okay. Before we leave this scene though. Yeah. So she's like, she, the way she says women without scars is intimating that she is a woman with scars. Therefore, he must not want her. That he prefers women without scars. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have any scars yet. No, she has... She has, like, one on her face. Not as bad as Big Kim, but... Yeah, she does not qualify as being a scarred person yet. Yeah. She has, I mean, I think we've seen every match that she has been in. And it's only been a handful through the montage. So, yeah, she does not count as a scarred woman. Yeah. One thing that I kind of like about the hotel scene is that immediately after it, we get a shot of Gonzo in amongst the upper class people. Yes. And his arrangement is much different. He's dressed very finely. Yes. He's eating at a buffet. Uh Uh-huh. You know, and so he's approached by Hugh Keysburn and Hugh Keysburn is like, okay, you need to wreck Sallow. Like, you need to destroy this guy. Yeah. He gives him specific instructions. Yeah. You're going to break his legs. Like, take his other eye. Yeah, take his other eye and break his legs. I think those were the specifics. Yeah. So we get into, like, the next morning or something, and Gar is down there at the bottom of the thing, and he's shouting up to find Sallow and Kitta. And waking everybody up. Oh, my gosh. The comments from the peanut gallery in this scene are priceless because he's like, Shouting up there and people are like, shut up, go away. And then he eventually gets Kitta's attention. She leans over first and then Sala leans after. And he's like, we got into the trial or whatever it is. Yeah. And so as soon as he said, we got in, they approved us. There's other voices. No one cares. Yes. I'm like, (laughs) prize heckling right there. Yep. But yeah, they get to go up against... A challenger team, and the the challenger team that represents the Red City must not be a regular group of, like, top-notch seat. Yeah, I feel like they're probably, like, the junior people. Yeah. Yeah. Because Gonzo shows up to play with them, and they're like, Gonzo, what are you doing here? You don't usually fight in challenges. And Gonzo's like, oh, special request or something like that. Yeah. And then he gives one of the other slashers instruction. He says, okay, you see that guy? When I hit him, you need to pin him. Yes. And keep him down. Yeah. So in this first round, like, they go for, I think it's like 35 stones before people really start, like, noticing something is up. And by the time they hit 60 stones, which is like three times better than any challenger team has ever gone, you get this kid who's running through the Red City getting people to go watch this thing. Because nobody watches challenge matches. They're usually way too quick to even, you know, count as worth it. So they're having just this knockout, drag out round where Kitta is all over this Red City quick. And they are going back and forth. And so this opposing quick, he knocks down Kitta and then he has the skull and he does this like showboaty slide on his knees uh-huh. to the end of the thing. And then normally he has beaten up the opposing quick enough that he just plops the skull right. down. At that but, point, he doesn't have to worry about the opposing quick. But Kitta gets up and she tackles this guy yep. before he can place the skull down. And then the whole rest of the match, the the remaining 40 stones, is her just either beating up on him or getting between him and the post. Yeah, I mean, the post is right there. She's just just standing between him and the post. Covering and he it like a boss. And cannot get around her. Yeah. And so 
the longer they stand playing, like the more and more the arena is filling up with people and they are going crazy because they can't imagine that this is actually happening. Yeah. That this no-name challenger team from the Wasteland is coming in and holding their own so effectively. And everyone is doing pretty good except for Big Kim. I think she got up against Gonzo because the other guy was pinning Sallow. Yes. And he is like wrecking her. Yeah, well, she got to the point where she was just holding on like with her entire body to his leg. So that exposed her back. Yeah, and so he's wailing And he's got his club and he's just, yeah, wailing on her back and her legs. She can't protect herself because she's expending so much energy and focus just holding onto his leg, keeping him away from the quicks. Yeah. So she she sacrificed herself so that the quicks could do their thing without interference. Yeah. So the first round ends. Yep. They make it to 100. At the end of the 100, Kitta has the uh, dog skull yep. in her hands. Yeah, she got it. She wrestled it away from the opposing quick. Yep. Before the time ran out, so they have to they have to make a few substitutes between round one and round two. Yes, which seems unfortunate and a little unfair, but that's the way it goes. The league team they have plenty of people. Yeah. Who are fresh and skilled? They just switch them out. You know, our challenger team they don't have anybody else, but they do. Kim can't play. She is done. So they are preparing to play with only four players until Gandhi steps up and says, I'll do it. I'll play. And he's nowhere near as like armored as the rest of them. No, which I thought was surprising. Why didn't they take some armor pieces from Kim and kind of make them work on him? So Salo pulls Gandhi aside and he's like, I'm going to need you to do a fish hook. And Gandhi's like, on who? And he's like, on the guy that pinned me last round. Right. So he's getting some revenge. So as the round starts, Sallow goes for the guy that pins him, gets him on the ground, and then Gandhi comes over and he does a fish hook maneuver, which I guess is kind of like some sort of arm bar leg pin type thing. Yeah. And this guy that has been fish hooked, he cannot move. Nope, like, he's done for. Gandhi is super strong because he walks around with a big old wardrobe on his back all the time. Yep. And this guy is like struggling to move and he looks over and Gandhi's just sitting there grinning. Yeah. Like it's nothing to him. Yes. Just hold on. And he was so delightful. This gives Sallow the opportunity to go up against Gonzo. Yes. Mabulu and the other slasher are off doing their other thing. Yeah, the last match doesn't really pay attention to Mabulu and his opponent or Gar and his opponent. Yeah, but the this last round is definitely between Salo and Gonzo going at each other. It pretty much turns into like a like a pride thing. Absolutely. And because they end up fighting directly in front of the window that has Yuki's burn in it. Yep. And so as Salo beats up Gonzo. Yuki's burn is right there seeing it happen. And once Gonzo goes down because, you know, he got beaten up so much, Rudger Howard takes off his helmet. He looks right at Yuki's burn, like stares him down because he knows that, like, he's better than these other league people and that he would still be the top of the pile if he didn't get exiled. So with Gonzo, like, taken out, like, he got knocked out. Yeah, he's no longer a worry. Sallow walks over to the opposing team's quick and just grabs him and throws him down. Yep. 
And so he's so, done for. So Kit has got the skull, and she's like, "Awesome, I'm gonna go run." And and but Sallow grabs her arm, and he's like, "No." And they kind of look around at the field. Yeah. And the Challenger team is in control everywhere. Yeah. So Sallow goes, "No, walk slowly, slowly." Which, and so she just takes I mean, her time. She was she was showboating in a less showboaty way, but she was still showboating. Like, just go put the head on the stick. No, this was this wasn't her. This wasn't her thing at this point. This was Sallow trying to make a point. Yes. Yes, it was. And it's funny because you could say, well, if she's taking her time, they're going to run out of time. Because, But no, this guy who's keeping time throwing stones Has at the plate. Has stopped throwing stones. Yeah, he gets distracted by the fact that she's just slowly walking. And so she just trots over to the other side of the thing and just puts the skull down and they've won. Like no challenger team has ever lasted this long or won against a league team. Yes. And so people lose their minds mm-hmm. watching this happen. In the end, Gar, Mabulu, and Kida get picked up to be league players. Yeah. And we see a little shot of them playing in a league match. Yep. But Sallow and Big Kimber and Gandhi go back out into the wasteland and we never get to see everyone necessarily like get what they wanted like we never get to see kiddo with silk we never get to see gar showered with accolades um but we do have like this parting shot of big kim and sallow and you know some new people they picked up out in the wasteland again and they're just waiting for their challengers to arrive because you know this is their life and gonzo goes up to the the lord after the the ending fight and he's like well what are you gonna do to sallow and the lord's like nothing i'm gonna send him back out into the wasteland and i feel like that's punishment enough yeah i think sallow's story is not so much to get back into good graces it's just to prove that he's good enough to make it you know what i mean yes just kind of for him i think they're he wants to remind them who he is and how good he is yeah and he is okay returning to his exiled life and leaving them behind forever yeah just as long as they recognize that he is better than them yeah. still with you know old bones and one eye yeah so and that's pretty much where the movie ends wraps up. It's very satisfying. It is very satisfying. Um, there are other people that do not share that opinion. <laughs> <laughs> the Blood of Heroes has a 13% critic consensus. Really? And a 76% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not... cool with the 76%. Yeah. I mean, I liked it more than 76 but... I, I'm good with that number. I don't really understand the 13% critic score. Yeah. So Variety says in their 2010 review, so they didn't review it when it came out. This is like someone going back and watching and it. And watching old movies. Um, and, yeah. They say plot development is slim. Much of the running time is given over to the game itself, which seems to have no rules except that the winning team places the skull of a dog atop a pointed stick. And it's like, they're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the rules are pretty loose. But there is structure to the game. Yeah. You just have to look for it. Um, from Vincent Canby from the New York Times said, an, un- an unusually successful film of its kind, a good lean variation on the post-apocalyptic adventure thriller that looks into the future to see the dark ages of the past. That was uh, written August 2004. He gave it a three out of five. The thing I like about this movie is that it's a sports movie. Yes. Like, yes, it's post-apocalyptic. Yeah, but you could replace that sport with almost any other sport. Yeah. And have a movie that has probably been made. Like, this is essentially post-apocalyptic 
Bend It Like Beckham. Or I, I've been I've actually never seen Bend It Like Beckham. I assume it's about playing sports, but yeah. the tenants and tropes of the sports genre are all here. Yes, absolutely. The young buck who wants to prove something, the old veteran who still has a lot to contribute. Like they're all here. Mm-hmm. And I think it works. I agree. I I, th- I think it works as well. I think it takes that typical sports movie and adds to it because they are post-apocalyptic. And I really like the addition of the party after the matches uh-huh. that these people who live these difficult lives and you know are barely surviving they have this joy the game Mm -hmm. and when they celebrate either winning or losing they celebrate that the game was played a good game was played yeah i kind of look at this whole setup as ultimately a hopeful film that yeah society and resources and all the things that make modern life modern life have broken down and blown away, but we except still have accordions. Yes, except accordions there are still accordions. Have hung on, but despite all of that loss, there are still people that survive. They thrive, and they thrive to the point where they can have sports. Yes, sports are not something that help you survive day no. to day. It's not collecting food. It's not cultivating food. It's not building or maintaining shelter. It's a distraction. Right. For things like sports to exist, and a lot of anthropologists frame it in, for things like art to exist, those other basic needs have to be met. Yeah. You have to be able to produce enough food to have people who don't have to be producing food. Yeah. So they that's the level that they're at. They produce enough that there are people who don't have to be producing. And instead of art and arguably culture, it's sports. Yeah. But And it's not just sports. It's like there is a lifestyle and a whole culture around the sports. Yes. Like, these skulls that they're using for the game, they're not like all ratty, decaying, gross skulls. No, they're skulls. decorated. They're ornate. Yeah. And they're And I imagine decorated. that they are decorated in a certain way based on what town they came from. Yeah. Like towns have symbols that they specifically use or colors that they specifically use. So it's it's very interesting. It's it's one of those things where you could take a deep dive into it. I don't think this is a movie that I would be willing to break down minute by minute just because it is a sports movie. Oh. And I'm not sure like all of those game montages yeah. would be terribly interesting to dig into. No. It's just the implications of the world seem very interesting. Yes. I think it could be I, I think you're right, it could be delved into, but the thought of myself going through it minute by minute. It's like I'm okay, the matches I kind of equate the equate those with battle scenes. Yeah. Lots of like mud and blood and grossness. I don't particularly enjoy them. Mm -hmm. What this movie had going for it is they were really quick. Yeah. One thing I kind of like about these games, and and I think you touched on this a little bit just now, is that this is a world that was destroyed by war. And so in this post apocalypse, they don't fight wars. They play games. Yes. They play war games. It kind of has a bit of a Thunderdome feel to it where 
there's no real examples of people like getting into disagreements and fighting out and hashing out because that's what the Thunderdome is for. Yeah. It's one of those things where in order to keep the entire world from burning up, if people have disagreements, they settle it in the dome and then it's done. Um, yeah, we're never shown any real conflict. Yeah. And I like that in this movie, like there are people that have those urges and those tendencies to be really physical. You join a jugger team. Yeah. And your job now is to go from town to town or stay in one place and defend the title and just beat up on people for you know five six minutes at a time yep and you know that is their way of releasing that pent-up energy right and and gaining glory what i like about that is at the end there's no animosity yeah everyone is really cordial yeah it's all for sport and it's so established that that's the framework yeah There is one point in this movie where Rutger Hauer is kind of shambling around this town after a game and their visiting team beat the local team. And so he kind of stumbles into a room and there's the other team. Yeah. And it looks like they're going to throw down. It looks like they're going to fight. But And I thought I even said there's going to be a rumble. But then the leader of the other team sees Rutger Hauer and he starts laughing and he gives him a big hug. It's like these guys share a kindred spirit as players of the game yes and yeah there is income disparity and there are people trying to eke out existences but you know it doesn't seem like it's a bad setup the universe that they are they've crafted in this movie like it could be better yes but it doesn't seem awful it's no it's not as bad as mad max no it is not as bad as mad max no so is there anything in this movie that kind of sticks out as your favorite part favorite thing i i think my favorite thing about the movie is life outside yeah i i it it is a hard life and these people do work hard but then they have this entertainment that comes around that they are so excited for and they just want to see a good match it's more about seeing a good game than it is about who wins Mm -hmm. and of course it's still a matter of pride about your team winning you know you want them to win but you want to see a good match then you have a party. Doesn't seem so bad to me. No. I mean, life in the city, underground, no, I that seems horrid to me. Um, but that kind of semi-freedom of being out in the world, it's only semi-freedom because you're still working hard just to survive. But but you're out in the world and you can see the sky and you can feel the breeze and you get rained on. And yeah, it just doesn't seem so bad. Yeah. If I had to pick out one thing in this movie that I really enjoy, I think it would be... The fact that they've crafted this game that is really easy to understand, even without having it laid out. I enjoy the game. Yeah. I think it's an incredibly unique part of this movie. It certainly sets it apart from other post-apocalyptic films. And it's enjoyable to watch because there are elements to it where if you want to focus on the slashers, you can focus on how they interact with the other slashers on the other team. If you want to focus on the grifter and watch the chain work, like that's another element that you can pay attention to. And if you want to just focus on the quicks, like that's its own little battle there. Like I say, it goes back to the Quidditch thing. Yeah. You know. How they there's these specific responsibilities of the the game winner, the strategist, and the muscle. Yeah. Like I think I don't think we've drawn the direct comparison between Quidditch and the game. Yeah, I'm not really sure that there is. I mean, obviously the quick and the seeker. The seeker are very comparable, but the roles of the others, yeah. it, it, it's kind of hard to compare them one to one. But 
I think a team as a whole is very comparable. Yeah. Like it would be the equivalent of having three beaters, one chaser, and one seeker. Yeah, Except maybe. the chaser and the beaters can't touch the quaffle. Well, they're not supposed to touch there the quaffle even, anyways. There wouldn't even be a quaffle. No, would there be wouldn't like, be a okay, quaffle. Okay, so if you wanted to take the game and play it in the wizarding world, you would take your seekers and you would take a snitch and maybe make maybe swap the switch out the snitch out for a quaffle. There's something like that. And so you have your two seekers, they can touch the quaffle, and then you have three beaters on each team and what we're beating each other instead yeah, of who are beating bludgers. up each other, but at the same time they're also trying to beat up the seekers. And then the keeper is kind of like the grifter. I know I said the chaser, but like the keeper is kind of the same, except the keeper keeper doesn't protect the goal. The keeper kind of protects the quick. Honestly, it, it sounds like a jumbled mess because I'm not explaining it nicely. And it's an audio thing. There's no way I could ever show you a picture <laughs> of how it would line up one to one. But I kind of imagine like if the wizarding world had a Australia school. That they would play something more like That they this. would play the game and they wouldn't play Quidditch. <laughs> Bunch of wizard kids out in a field beating each other up. It would make more sense in a wizarding, wizarding world to play a game where you beat each other up so much. Because they have like healing spells and potions and whatnot. Yeah. You wouldn't walk away with this group of people who are covered in blood and then covered in scars. I mean, these... The um the original quick the one that with the broken leg that dog didn't boy. last dog boy yes his face <laughs> looked like it got chewed up yeah it was very deformed yeah yes like oh speaking of deformed faces Mbulu he had like stripes yeah he had like scars now going was all that up and down his face they seemed too like uniform and decorative to be scars from playing the you game. Think some sort of ritualistic scarification. It seemed more like cultural. This was these this, this scarification was cultural. Could be. Yeah, I wasn't really sure. They never go into it. No, they don't. <laughs> um, is there anything about this movie that stands out as your least favorite part? Um, something that this is pretty like small and kind of trivial, but something that like made me feel uncomfortable is that when they were playing matches, and also when they were practicing matches, out in the wasteland, the surfaces that they had to play on were so varied. Like, sometimes it was dry, almost like fluffy sand. Sometimes it was mud. Because there was one match that we saw that they played in the rain, and it was disgusting mud. And sometimes it was, like, rocky. But most of the time, it was very difficult to work on. Yeah. Especially for the quick. Who you need solid ground to be quick. Yeah. Um, so just that the awful footing that they had made me uncomfortable. I was relieved when they got to the city playing in this like arena where it's actual hard like concrete ground. Yeah. yeah. Different surface altogether. Yeah. Different surface altogether. And I was like, oh, finally they can like play. Yeah. If I had to pick out one thing that I didn't like in this movie, it would be the design of the Red City. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Oh, it's all underground. But at the same time, design-wise... It was nothing. There was no design. Not very compelling at all. No, it was just dark, crowded streets. There was no design. Narrow street. Like, the hotel hotel on the side of the wall was kind of interesting. Yes, it was. But at the same time, I just... I did not enjoy any of the city stuff. It was loud cramped 
stuffy, just not enjoyable. No. I much I prefer the Wasteland portion. I don't understand why people want to live there. Well, I, don't know, I feel the same way about cities now. Like, people who live, like, downtown, and I'm like, I, I just don't get it. Yeah. But they do, so. That's right. No yeah. one's going to force you to live in the big city. Yeah, I mean, people who live in the Red City, they get it. Yeah, that's the important thing. Yep. So, final thoughts and recommendations. Would you recommend someone watch this movie? Yeah, I do. Um, I don't, like, overflowingly recommend it. Um, but yeah, watch it. I, I, I can't imagine people hating this movie. Mm-hmm. I imagine at the very least they'll be, like, neutral about it. I see this movie as a good introduction to the post-apocalyptic genre if the type of movie you enjoy watching are sports movies. Yeah, like a crossover movie. Like, yeah. if you watch Rudy and you love the fact that they play football, or if you watch... Trying to think of sports movies. Angels in the outfield and love that they play (laughs) baseball. Like if that is your thing and you want to know what the post-apocalyptic genre is all about, you watch the salute of the jugger and there's enough sports things in there to latch on to that you can go with it like yeah it's a sport you have to learn but it's so simple that you can get on board with it i don't think that you know anybody coming off the street will love this movie from beginning to end regardless of who they are but you know if you've got a buddy and you love mad max and you want them to get into mad max and you want to just introduce them to the genre you show them Salute of the Juggers, and that will be a good entry point for them. Yeah, that's, I agree. That's who I would recommend this movie to. Absolutely. Yep. Any final thoughts that from there? I don't think so. So, until next week, you can visit us on our website, madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at madmaxminute. Like us on Facebook, and join our Facebook group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thank you.